You're listening to the King's Church Podcast. Visit us online at kingswisbeach.org.uk. As Matt read earlier, we're, we're looking today in Matthew chapter 22 and verses 15 to 20, 22. The story about um, Jesus teaching on the subject of paying taxes to the Roman Emperor, Caesar. This is um, part of a a brief two-week series. Last week, Clive talked about um, our attitude to government, about praying for those who are in authority, because that is God's plan, that we have order and authority in our society, and we need to be praying for those people who have that authority, because that's the way we get a more peaceful life if we can pray that they get men of integrity, women of integrity, people who care. And then um, there's also the question of what about being the citizen of two kingdoms? As in, we are also citizens of God's kingdom and in fact that primarily. And again, Clive began to move into that towards the end of last week. So today, here we are. Now, this starts as quite an interesting one. This is part of the, um, the last week of Jesus' life. He's ridden into Jerusalem on the donkey um, in a very messianic action. He has gone into the temple again with a very prophetic action, cleansing the temple, um, asserting his authority over it. This has caused a lot of ripples, as you might imagine, among the authorities in Jerusalem. Then he's begun to teach in the temple every day and he's saying some pretty controversial things. Things which some people are finding deeply offensive while other people are really thinking, could this be the Messiah? And he's come already with a great um, group of people from Galilee and now there are more joining. And so you've got a, a sort of a real kind of buzz in the town. Is this the Messiah? And other people think, oh my goodness, we don't want any of that sort of thing here. So it's quite quite a tense situation. And here, as Matt read earlier, we find that you've got some people who are being sent to ask a trick question. Sort of thing they do with politicians, you know. They try to get them into a corner, and this is what we see happening here, that the Pharisees have gone and plotted how they might trap him into saying the wrong thing, and so they send some of their followers to him with the Herodians. This is quite a strange bedfellows situation. The Pharisees are zealous for the law. They are people who definitely want the kingdom of God, but a lot of them definitely don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. The Herodians, on the other hand, are the supporters of the Herods, which is the sort of puppet kings that the Roman Empire has set up. And um, their bread is definitely buttered on the Roman side. So they're what you would call collaborators, really. So they don't want any messiahs at all. But those two groups would normally hardly speak to each other. They disagree on almost everything. And yet somehow when it comes to the question of getting rid of Jesus, we find that they can get together because they, one thing they all agree on is they don't want Jesus. 
So along they come with their trick question and the rather flattering introduction. Teacher, we know that you're truthful, that you teach God's way truthfully. You don't care what anyone thinks about you because you don't try to flatter people or favor them. So tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? So it's like, you know, we'll butter him up. We know that you will answer truthfully. And obviously, they are expecting that whatever way he answers, they've got him. If he answers and says, no, you mustn't pay the taxes, well, then they're straight off to the governor to say, this man is inciting rebellion against the Romans. And then he'll get arrested and crucified. If he says, yes, you should pay taxes, then all these poor people who are desperately thinking that he's about to sort of bring in the new kingdom will fall away because, let's face it, the whole point they're waiting for is to get rid of the Romans and be once again the people of God under his rulership. And so if Jesus starts saying, oh, yes, pay taxes to the Romans, I think then his, his following will drop away. Either way, they've managed to get rid of their problem. And so they come with this flattering comment. And let me just add here, it is true, of course, that Jesus does speak the truth, regardless of what people's reaction may be. But that is not because he's a kind of, you know, Frank Sinatra type, well, the main thing is I did it my way. No, that is not what he's talking about. He is not a rebel. He will speak what is true and what is godly and what is right no matter what may be the personal cost for him. And of course, he knows that within days, the full cost of that is going to come right down on his head and he will find himself on the cross. So, we notice he sees straight through them, as always. He knew their evil intentions. Why are you trying to trick me, you hypocrites, he said. Show me the tribute coin. Now, earlier on in our meeting, we were looking at coins, weren't we? And you notice that the coins, on the front of them, they have somebody's head. We had some old English ones, we had a Chinese one, we had some American ones, we even had a couple of Roman ones. And on the front is the head of the person who is head of state at the time that coin is produced. And in this instance, it was the Emperor Tiberius, who was called Tiberius Augustus because he was the, you know, the, the, follower, the son on from the previous emperor, Augustus. And the name Augustus means venerable, sacred, revered, great, glorious, majestic, all that sort of thing. And interestingly, I'll just add, the Emperor Augustus, that wasn't the name he had when he was born. He was called Octavian. But after he won the battle that made him able to become the first Roman emperor, he gave himself a new name, Augustus, the great one, the glorious one. So, and then after he died, they all said he'd become a god. So he's now the divine Augustus. And Caesar is his son. So on the front of this coin, you would find the inscription Tiber in Latin, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back of it, it said Pontifex Maximus, which means the greatest high priest. Very interesting. We have there 
the emperor of the world, the son of God, the great high priest. Does any of that ring a few echoes for us as Christians? That's the, um, this world's effort. Here they are speaking to the one who owns those titles. The emperor, the great king over all kings. The son of God and the great high priest. But you notice Jesus doesn't start sort of saying, no, well, actually, of course, this should be my inscription on here. Well, for a start off, that was one of the reasons there was a problem. You notice he says, can you bring me one of the coins? He doesn't carry one on him. That's partly because Jesus wasn't somebody that went around with a huge heavy purse. He wasn't a rich man in that sense. But also, a lot of the Jews would not use those coins because they'd got the image of the emperor on them. And if you know your Old Testament, and from last week when we were looking at the Ten Commandments around our tables, the second commandment is you are not to make any graven image. The Jews were forbidden to put the image of any person on their coins. No man, no animal. So actually, the, the Jewish coinage had, um, well, like in Galilee, it had a, a little reed on it because, you know, reeds were common in Galilee. That's just one example. But their coins didn't have images of people on because that was considered to be blasphemous, which is one of the reasons why some people said, well, we can't pay this tax. This is the filthy image of an emperor. We were not going to handle that coin. And they would do their daily shopping in the Jewish coins. But, of course, the emperor's tax had to be paid in his coinage because, of course, that's the point. It's his coinage. It's the stamp of his authority. It's the currency of his realm. So, anyway, somebody managed to find him a coin, and he looks at it, and here he says, whose image is this? And the answer is Caesar's. And whose inscription, you know, Tiberius, Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, great high priest, whose inscription is this? It's Caesar's. And so he says, well then, you'd better give Caesar back what belongs to Caesar. In other words, he's actually answered them with the wisdom that comes from that gift of the Holy Spirit we were talking about a few weeks back. Yes, he says, pay the taxes. I mean, after all, money is the thing you can't worship and worship God, if you remember. That's what Jesus said. And he's not a worshipper of mammon. You know, the mammon is neither here nor there, really. But, but yes, in this world, that is the thing that dominates everything. That is the thing that gets you the place you need to be. But not in the kingdom of God. But... Under the Roman rule, they were enjoying the Roman roads, they had the Roman courts, they had the Roman education system, they had a lot of benefits that come from having government, whatever government you have. And guess what? Those things don't come free. They do not have a bottomless purse. They is we, and the taxes are what pays for all those things that everybody wants and makes use of. So, so yes, he's saying, Actually, no, you pay the tax. At the moment, this is the government. And according to 
his view on scripture and we find it followed on later by the apostles, we have to recognize that all authority comes from God. They will be accountable for how they've used it, but it comes from God. And rebellion is not the mark of a Christian ever under any circumstances. Rebellion was what got us into trouble way back in the garden when we decided, no, we don't want God to make the rules, we want to make them. That's rebellion. So yes, he's quite clear. No, pay the taxes. But it's interesting, the word he uses. The Greek word is apodote, which means literally, give back. It's not just, yeah, give him the taxes. Your tax is not something that you sort of generously donate to the government, it's what you owe. And the same applies for us today. You may not like paying taxes, most people don't. But, and, and sometimes you may disagree with some of the taxes that are being levied. You can, well, in our country, you are allowed to object, you're allowed to write your MP, you're allowed to say all that, but you are not allowed to defraud the taxman. And this is what Jesus is basically saying here. No, you must obey the law. God does not forbid you to pay your taxes. In fact, he expects you to do it. But what is it they're doing? He says, so this, this is Caesar's rubbish. Give it back to him. Return to Caesar that which belongs to him. But then he says something else. And give back to God what belongs to God. And here is where we come to the crunch. Jesus is not going to be the kind of Messiah who's going to raise an army like several had done before him and had all ended up on crosses. That's what happens to rebels. Jesus is going to conquer a bigger foe than Rome. Jesus is going to conquer the one who is behind the whole system of human empire. He's going to conquer the devil himself and the power of death. And he's going to do that not by raising an army, but by surrendering to the very authority of that ungodly government. Surrendering even to the very power of death itself and defeating it in a way that nobody would ever have thought from a human manly brain would work. And so too for his followers, the same principle applies. Sometimes we will find that we are in conflict with the, well certainly with the spirit of our age, sometimes possibly even with the law of our land. For many Christians in other countries, that is already the case. That in order to be faithful and to give God what is due to him, you are going to find yourself in trouble with the law of the land. I suggest in our country, the thin end of the wedge is going in and the time will probably come. But at the moment, we're still allowed to say what we really believe. However, Where the crunch comes, as Clive did say last week, and I'm going to quote the same passage that he did from John Stott's book, because I think he does put it really well. 
It's when Caesar begins to demand worship. You see, after they decided Augustus had become a god and then Caesar is suddenly his son, what actually began to happen is that all over the Roman Empire, temples were going up with statues to Caesar and people were required to engage in worshipping the emperor. They could still worship other gods if they wanted, but you know the key thing was that Caesar was the one you had to give your primary allegiance to and the assumption being that all the gods, of course, were going to back up Caesar, which, given that they don't exist, wouldn't have done him a lot of good. But anyway, that was, that was the thinking... And of course, once that happens, that's when you begin to find yourself in the position, as Clive said last week, that Daniel was in, or that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in, or that the midwives in Egypt were in when they were, when they were ordered to kill all the Hebrew boy babies at birth, and they wouldn't do it. You see, there are times when you cannot obey God and Caesar, and that's the crunch point. So let me read the passage from John Stott here. That's it. We are to submit to the state because its authority is derived from God and its officials are God's ministers right up to the point where obedience to the state would involve us in disobedience to God. At that point, our Christian beauty is to disobey the state in order to obey God. For if the state misuses its God-given authority and presumes either to command what God forbids or to forbid what God commands, as in when they were told to not preach in the name of Jesus anymore, we have to say no to the state in order to say yes to Christ. As Peter put it, we must obey God rather than men or in Calvin's words, obedience to man must not become disobedience to God. That's our crunch point. And any notion that there's a kind of a division between the sacred and the secular is not what Jesus tells us. Everything is about our allegiance to Jesus. All the decisions we make, all the opinions we hold, all the, the beliefs that we proclaim, they, are, they involve all of our life. It's not a private little arrangement between us and God to go on in private, but don't, don't get too public about it, please, and please don't force it down anybody else's throat. Well, I'm not suggesting you force it down anybody's throat. You can't do that. You can't force somebody to become a Christian. But the idea that it's somehow offensive to preach what Jesus has told us to tell people about, that, I'm afraid, is one of those cases where if they forbid what God commands, we know who we have to obey. But that doesn't mean that we're troublemakers and difficult people and people who go around in an ungodly way um, shouting what we think because we're not being told what to do we're not being controlled and i will say what i like and all the rest of it that is not a christian attitude at all and it should never be seen you notice jesus didn't do that when he was before pilate he didn't deny the truth when pilate questioned him and he was quite clear he said when pilate said oh i could kill you or i could set you free he says no you, would on, you only have power over me because it was being given to you from above. 
And it's the power above that I'm submitting to, is what he's saying. But it is costly. And that's the thing we've got to get hold of. It's not about getting out there, manning the barricades and sort of shouting our mouths off. It's about being willing to pay the price of being part of a different kingdom which has a prior lo loyalty to our kingdom here. And when we get into the book of Revelation and we see those people all before the throne, uh, the martyrs that is, and, and, um, and they're shouting, you know, hallelujah, sort of the, the victory has come. They talk about the martyrs, they have overcome the devil who's been thrown down to the earth. They defeated him by the word of their testimony, by the word of God, and because they loved not their lives even unto death. People often forget that last bit on that particular quotation. In other words, if necessary, they were prepared to die for him. And I'm going to finish today with another quotation, which I think sums it up very well. Sir Thomas More, the man who refused to sign the oath of allegiance to Henry VIII when he decided that he would become head of the church because Sir Thomas More couldn't do that in good conscience. So they cut his head off. And his last words reported on the scaffold were this. I die the king's good servant, but God's first. <laughs>